the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. San Francisco, as we know, is one of the most expensive places in the entire country to reside. So the notion of helping people try to make ends meet is is probably an altruistic one, if not a, a wholly unrealistic one. Add to that the perhaps misplaced notion that the uptick in crime that we've seen largely post-COVID, largely since 2020, um, is directly attributable to economic times. Now, what kind of falls apart with that observation is that when you start to look at the kind of crimes taking place, often it's not people who are going to the grocery store and stealing bread and bologna because their kids are hungry. It's people that are stealing because they know they can sell the goods for higher prices so they can go out and buy some toy, or people that are trying to feed a drug habit. So there may be some serious thought that we need to give to the notion of creating some sense of economic structure. We've often heard it um, tied into uh, basic income or universal basic income. Uh, You've heard perhaps those phrases utilized. The notion that, for example, in San Francisco, every single San Francisco resident would receive a minimum amount of money. If you have a job, probably doesn't apply to you. But everybody would get a minimum amount of money. And the thinking goes that with that, it will alleviate San Francisco's crime problem. Really? Well, let's get some insights from Dr. Robert Wright, Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. And Dr. Wright, we appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule to be with us. First, take us back a little bit of a, perhaps perspective here in terms of the, the notion of, of so-called universal basic income. Well, where, where does that find its, its roots, its genesis? Uh, well, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, Thomas Paine is often attributed uh, with the first uh, universal basic uh, income scheme. Uh, he came up with the idea about 15 or so years after writing that famous uh, pamphlet, Common Sense, that launched the uh, American Revolution. Um and he had been influenced by uh, what he saw uh, during the French Revolution, and um, you know, but it wasn't it wasn't seriously taken up. Uh, it's a very difficult um, policy to to implement in some ways. And you know, some people are behind it because uh, you know, supposedly it's easier than unconditional, or excuse me, than than conditional, um, you know, traditional welfare uh, payments. Uh, because you don't have to verify anything. You just send checks out to, to everyone, uh, sort of like the stimulus uh, payments that uh, the federal government's been making periodically over the last uh, 20 or so years. Um, but, of course, 
uh, the money's got to come from someplace, and that is the that's the rub. That's the <laughs> that's the tough nut to uh, to to solve. Yeah, and you know, uh, we we kind of going through much of the stimulus payments that we saw during COVID. You know, and I, I've often laughed. People have talked about the notion that well, one of the reasons why it's so difficult to get people to come back to work now is because they're enjoying all of this free money, as if a stipend of four hundred or twelve hundred dollars is suddenly going to be a life changer. Um, that said, I guess there is a, a bit of which that 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 unproven notion of giving a little bit of money and it will solve all their problems ties right into this. Now, I, I understand that one of the proposals here, at least under consideration in San Francisco, um, is a universal basic income of $15,000 per year. Anybody that lives in the city of San Francisco will immediately tell you if it was $15,000 a month, you might struggle to make ends meet. <laughs> where where do they come up with these numbers? And, 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 and just as important, Dr. Right? Where are they going to come up with all this money? Uh, I, I don't know, and I and I don't know. Uh, what I do know uh, is that I have uh, ninety nine problems, and every single one of them I can trace to the government. <laughs> we used to in this country have a large number of charities, some religious, some secular. Uh, they were uh, paid for by donations and it was uh, said and I think uh, you know with a good deal of truth that both parties gain from the transaction both the giver and the recipient because the giver was giving uh, you know some of his or her income uh, voluntarily to a specific person or group of people who they felt as though they wanted to uh, to aid uh, in, in in some way, right? So they're they're uh, they can legitimately feel good about themselves. They are in you know many cases legitimately fulfilling uh, religious uh, obligations. It gave people uh, reasons to go to church other than you know purely spiritual ones, and it truly created uh, community real communities, not the way that the word is thrown around, you know, to today to mean any group of people who, uh, who are all trying to get the, you know, the same, the same thing from the government. Uh, but with these uh, various UBI um, programs and, uh, and you know, the, the gift, uh, the guaranteed income for, for transgender people and the um, uh, abundant uh, birth project and all of that, uh, basically what the government is doing is taking money from people who have some and giving it to groups that the government thinks uh, needs it. And a lot of times it looks uh, arbitrary. It looks like it's uh, virtue signaling. And it, it um, the, the amounts, is, as you noted earlier, you know, seem arbitrary or capricious. Like they're just coming up with, uh, with, with, with figures. And, uh, you know, sometimes those figures are just because that's what they happen to uh, to get um, from uh, a foundation, which is the way it's been working. Uh, these pilot projects have been working in most states. But California's flipped the script, as it often does. And uh, in California, it's the government that is funding many of these, some uh, directly 
and sometimes like in South San Francisco uh, via the YMCA. So they say, oh no, it's a private entity that's doing it, it's the YMCA, but the YMCA got the funding from uh, from the government, and of course, you know, you know that means ultimately from, from taxpayers. Wow. And I'm curious in terms of the kind of research that's gone into this. I mean, they, they come up with these numbers, they come up with these ideas. Has there ever been in in, in the background work and investigation that you've done uh, been a case of an example, either here in the United States or overseas? I know sometimes these, these sorts of, uh, you know, very social feeling programs are, are popular in places like the Netherlands and Finland and so forth. They tend to be a little bit more um, experimenting when it comes to social ideas. Is there any example of where this has been applied that has shown an appreciable change in quality of life and an appreciable decrease in the crime rate? I mean, if the argument is we need to do this because the reason why we have high crime is because people are not making enough money, then that would suggest to me that just the opposite ought to be true, that once these sort of of, of money giveaways are applied, that we should see an instant change in the crime rate. Yeah, it, um, you know, I, I wrote a book uh, about UBI with uh, Alexandra Prezhelinska uh, of um, uh, the Kaminsky School of Management in Warsaw, and uh, we looked at uh, UBI experiments and, and pilots and whatnot throughout history and throughout the world, and uh, there, there really hasn't been yet a true experiment, you know, with the, with the control group and all of that. Uh, but what we have noticed is uh, there's this there's this tendency where uh, the proponents of UBI say, "Oh, look! Well, the people who got the money report that they're better off." <laughs> you, you know, like we needed <laughs> like we needed that information, right? Um, and uh, they also tend to you know do all sorts of things, and, and it's you know it's hard to tell if they're just inept as, as social scientists. Uh, or that they're very clever and they know, they know exactly what they're doing. But there, there's also uh, a tendency to forget about the fact that cash is fungible. So they'll say all sorts of things like, oh, well, the, you know, the money was spent on Bibles and medicine um, with, without looking at how the increased income affected the entire range of purchases from, from the household, Right. Uh, as if as if there were discrete dollars or, or other currencies coming into these people, and then they were you know saving those in a jar and then just buying the Bibles and the medicine with the with, uh, with the money. Um, uh, so it's it's really it's really kind of a mess, and and so th- that's why uh, you know as a researcher at the um, American Institute for Economic Research, where we put a, a very high premium on science. Uh, what I have to say is that I uh, um, can't reject the hypothesis that UBI uh, doesn't do anything um, on that helpful for society. Um, you know, we, we just don't know, in other words, is the layman's uh, way of putting it, because um, there uh, have, have been um, no true attempts to, uh, you know, to try this out uh, society-wide. They always fail on, on at least one of the, the, the three main categories that uh, the um, Basic Income Earth Network put, puts out as, you know, the definition of, of UBI. Uh, they're either not universal, where, you know, certainly money that just goes to, to trans people or to artists is not universal. Um, they're not uh, basic, 
meaning that they are either too little money, like uh, in Alaska, or um, you, you know they're they're some, sometimes too too much money, and they're never um, really an income in, in the sense of a, a lifelong stream of money. They are always you know they run for a year or two or three at most, and it's not clear that. Uh, that's long enough to, to affect people's behavior on important things like criminality or uh, educational uh, attainment. Um, all of these things run run in at least two, two directions, right? So uh, UBI proponents say, hey, you know, well, people will now have time to get an education, which is true, but uh, also means that that education will be less valuable uh, to them because... Uh, of this uh, stream of money that's that's coming to them for, uh, for nothing. Well, you know, I, I'm certainly no no scientist by a long shot, but I have to suppose that there's something that seems to be terribly elementary or, or fundamental or basic in the conclusion that, you know, if the survey is, if everybody got... Free fifteen thousand dollars would uh, would that help out? Would make make life better? I don't know anybody that would say no to that, including including even a few people that make over a half million dollars a year would say, yeah, an extra fifteen grand. You know, uh, we're gonna get you an airplane and go fly to New York for the weekend and uh, go see a show and have dinner and come back. You know, life changing? Maybe not. Would it improve your station in life? I think anybody would argue that. Whether or not though, it's the kind of sustained improvement that is. Suggested is necessary for people that are living at at the, the lowest income rungs within society. Well, that's probably an entirely different story, particularly if that that money is being metered out over a, a projected amount of time. Uh, you know, as I suggested in my opening marks, it, it, it seems to me that you know uh, fifteen thousand uh, dollars will be a life changing. Uh, <laughs> maybe if you got it every month over the year in a city like San Francisco. Francisco, not so convinced. If you've just tuned in, Dr. Robert Wright is with us today, Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. We often couch this discussion in terms of how it benefits the least of these. Now, when we come back, I want to talk about the opposite side, and that is the the economic consequences. For example, what San Francisco is presuming, if you use a baseline of about 815,000 residents, could cost the city upwards of $12, $13 billion a year. That's only almost twice its existing budget. So what about the sustainability of any of these ideas? We'll talk about that next as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So normally in a, a healthy economy, there is an exchange of labor for wages and that goes to produce products that then get sold and then the income comes in and the process, the cycle sort of uh, repeats itself in the simplest, very simplest of terms. Uh, how do you go about just giving money away and where does it come from? And if it's coming from taxpayers, where are they getting it from? That maybe is the big part of this equation that, you know, at a level to say every individual ought to have at least a minimum ability to to have enough money to be able to survive. I don't know if 15 grand in San Francisco is surviving, but nevertheless, uh, it's the where does it come from part of the equation that seems to be also pretty murky. Dr. Robert Wright with us today, Senior Research Fellow with the American Institute for Economic Research. Uh, By the way, he has either authored or co-authored or edited over two dozen major books 
books, book series, and collections, including The Best of Thomas Paine, published in 2021, and Financial Exclusion, published in 2021. 19. So, Dr. Wright, what of that big question? I, I mentioned San Francisco. We're, <laughs> we're looking at essentially doubling the budget. So where does all that extra money come from? Well, the, the 12 to $13 billion that you noted uh, would be the, the gross amount. But one of the dirty secrets about uh, UBI is that, of course, your taxes would go up. So uh, the, the net would only be you know, uh, kind of spitballing two, two to only in quotation marks, two to three billion uh, per year, because, uh, you know, you're going to get that $15,000, but they're going to tax you $20,000 or $25,000, right? In order to um, be, be able to make the payments to uh, the, the people with, uh, with no or, or very low incomes who won't be paying any taxes and will we'll get the full, the full 15,000. So my, my question in that uh, op-ed in the OC Register was, um, what else could we do or could San Francisco do with that 2 to $3 billion, especially if it you know, wants to focus on crime? And I think uh, Mary Thoreau at the Independent Institute in Oakland, right across the bay from San, Fran- San Francisco, uh, had uh, an interesting uh, idea, uh, which was to remind San Francisco and uh, other pa- policymakers in, in California that the European drug model is not to have open air, free drugs and free needles and people living in tents and so on and, and so forth. Uh, the European model is rehabilitation. So they take people off the street and they get them uh, drug uh, treatment in order uh, to get them to stop using drugs, right? So that two to three billion dollars could be used uh, for a program like that, um, and where it's actually you know would be I- illegal again to camp in tenderloin and to defecate. Uh, you know, in the Presidio and, and, and all of that. Um, and uh, but but the notion is you get people, um, you know, uh, the treatment so they get off uh, the drugs and maybe could uh, could start to pay taxes. That reminds me of an op-ed I wrote several years ago. It didn't get much fort- uh, much traction, unfortunately, which I called um, uh, California's Green Minimum Wage, where I suggested that uh, it, it should be legal for uh, people to be able to work on organic farms in California for room and board, uh, like in the old days, right? So that uh, uh, organic farmers could get uh, the labor they need and people who don't want to uh, live on the street uh, could get some, uh, some, some job experience and, uh, and, and make some organic uh, food for everyone else. Well, and at least if there's a component where there's, there's, as I suggested earlier, normally it's, you know, cash in exchange for labor, there's give and take here, as opposed to just a free giveaway, um, which, as we've suggested, is wrought with all kinds of potential problems, not least of which is, where's the money coming from? Uh, and, you know, it's easy to say, we're going to raise the taxes. At what point do citizens say, you know what, this just isn't worth it, and finally say, I'm done. So, uh, 
the notion of at least saying, look, there's all kinds of jobs that need to be done, street cleaning and sweeping, and, and uh, you know, I mean, we could come up with, with lists that would be days long, that at least there could be some modicum of, of dignity attached to an effort to try and provide this sort of minimum living wage, although, again, arguably, it's, uh, it's neither a wage nor is it uh, minimally sufficient in a city like San Francisco. Dr. Wright, we're out of time. Boy, there's so much more to peel back on this onion. I'd love to get you back on the program uh, to discuss further. Uh, just absolutely phenomenal uh, content and uh, so much that we need to be, uh, be made aware of and understanding that there are more and more cities that are talking about things like this. And, you know, San Francisco um, had a history of being the city that knew how, I'm not so sure if maybe that does need a little bit of fine-tuning these days, but uh, let, let's see where it all takes us. Dr. Robert Wright, Senior Research Fellow with the American Institute for Economic Research. We appreciate your time and your insights. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. An interesting new book out that examines America's enemies and our use of love for the underdog that ultimately trashes America and American power is penned by Michael Prell. Michael is a columnist with the Washington Times. You can also read his musings at townhall.com. He served as crisis manager for the 2003 Northeastern blackout and a strategist for the Tea Party Patriots and is authored now a new book and called Underdogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to Trash American power. And uh, Michael, good to have you on the program tonight. Thank you for having me here, Craig. I appreciate it. Uh, first, define, if you would, for us the title here. We know what the underdog is. In fact, American, I think largely Americans have always enjoyed rooting for the underdog. Uh, but when you speak of underdogma in your book title, what do you mean by that? Well, you're right. America was founded on an underdog uprising against a more powerful adversary, the British. But underdogma is far different. Underdogma is the widespread and corrosive belief that in any given issue, whichever side has less power, the underdog, is automatically considered righteous simply because they have less power. And whichever side has more power, like America, is automatically considered wrong simply because they have more power. And it doesn't matter which side is actually right or wrong. All that matters to those who practice underdogma is which side has less or more power. And in my book, I show how this underdogma shapes many of the issues that shape our world today. And I answer the question, I ask the question, you know, why is it that some Americans embrace American power and American exceptionalism, while others feel the need to bow down and apologize for it? And then finally, I give readers the tools to fully embrace the idea of American exceptionalism unapologetically, and to beat back and defeat this corrosive belief system that I've called underdogma. Let's spend some time analyzing this. You mentioned about the very roots of America, that is the triumph of the the underdog over the overdog, in this case, uh, the the oppressive kingdom of uh, England uh, against the, the colonialists here in America. Um, this, of course, is something that I think has kind of set the stage for an interesting, uh, interesting dichotomy here in that as we move through then the subsequent growth and expansion of the United States in through the Industrial Revolution and modernization and the and eventually, of course, the outcome of the Second World War, uh, America uniquely has always been on the, on the side of being ourselves the overdog, and yet we've always tended to have kind of this soft spot in our hearts for the underdog. Well, because America was founded on that underdog uprising, it's part of the national character. 
But here's where under dogma is different. Under dogma says that the first Americans were good because they were relatively powerless. But as soon as America became big and successful and powerful, America became bad. So power, power equals bad and weakness equals good. Yeah, I describe it as an axis of power between the power-haves and the power-have-nots. The little guy can do no wrong, even when he does wrong. And the big guy can do no right, even when he does right. And this is where it separates our traditional notions of right and wrong. And wipes all that out and says, no, it only tilts on whichever side has less power or more power. Right and wrong objectively don't matter. And this is where moral moral relativism comes from. Boy, not only that, but the sense of entitlement, uh, what we're seeing going on with uh, this 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 sort of the uh, the Robin Hood, you know, shift to taking from the rich and giving to the poor that we're seeing uh, just, you know, blatant throughout government today. Um, this is really a dynamic that goes beyond the, you know, simple power struggles between the United States and other nations. We're even seeing this dynamic at play within American society and certainly with the American politic. So much of the mentality that has crept into the American psyche on this topic is impacting our lives in so many levels. I mean, we've seen going back to Johnson's Great Society, the notion of entitlement creeping in, even the idea that if someone has has uh, come up by their own bootstraps, so to speak, and they've worked hard, they've gotten an education, they've sacrificed, they've put in long hours, their family has sacrificed. Now, as a result of the fruit of their labor and blessings, they have been successful at life. They've been able to enjoy a modicum of success and some wealth. All of a sudden, somebody comes in and now is of the entitlement mentality that because you have and I have not, what you have, you must give to me. Not only have we seen that dynamic play at play here, I think, in underdogma, there's also the notion that we tend to suddenly, as uh, author Michael Perel points out, blame the overdog and immediately cast doubt on on he or she or it, um, even in the face of reality that would demonstrate that it's actually the underdog that's the evil one here. You spend some time in the book on this point, Michael, and I think one of the easiest things that we can demonstrate with this notion is a lot of what we've seen, in, in particularly in mainstream, so-called mainstream and liberal media, post-9-11, uh, th- this notion that somehow, well, what's taken place here is... You know, people that are victims of Americans' foreign policy and abuse and America standing up for totalitarian regimes like the Shah of Iran for so many years and, and even supporting Saddam Hussein, at least during the time that he was at war with, with our enemy Iran, to the point where what happened to uh, over 3,000 people on 9-11 was not the fault of the terrorists. It was really the fault of America. And it sounds crazy until you read their own words. So let me just reset the frame for people. This belief under dogma is a reflexive belief that the little guy is good, not because he's good, but simply because he has less power. And the big guy is bad because he has more power. So in the attacks of 9-11, there's a whole chapter I dedicate to this, and it's just shocking what happened. Because when that happened, the whole under dogma equation was turned upside down. America was the underdog. And we clearly saw America's enemies were the enemies. There was absolute moral clarity for about six hours. And then it started to shift, and you saw this underdogma happening. And I take readers through step by step by step. So there's two parts of underdogma. Number one is the big guy must be the bad guy. Did we see that happen after 9-11? Oh, yeah. 
first America was clearly the victim. And then we saw it creeping and creeping and creeping to maybe America brought it on itself. Maybe it was America's foreign policy. Maybe it was this, maybe it was that. Until it got to the point where high-profile Americans were blaming America for causing this to begin with. And the other side of underdogma is to deify the underdog, no matter what he does. Just because he has less power, he must be good. And if you think it's crazy that they tried it with the terrorists, they did. They went step by step by step. I have direct quotes from mainstream American media calling Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who planned the attacks, quote, thoughtful about his cause and craft and, quote, folksy. And I have five major American media personalities who referred to the 9-11 terrorists as courageous because they had the courage to fly plane loads of innocent people into buildings filled with other innocent people. That shows you the power of under dogma to completely sidestep the rational mind and get people to do these and say these horrible, horrible things. Well, to be sure, I mean, to suggest at any level that Khalid, uh, Sheikh Khalid Mohammed, the, the mastermind behind the 9-11 attacks is folksy, is like suggesting that, I don't know, uh, Joseph Stalin was just kind of a teddy bear. Yeah, you know, it just misunderstood. Slaughter a whole population. It's just bizarre. You where, know? Do, where does this stem from? Because I'm old enough to remember a time in this country, Michael, when it wasn't always like this. I mean, post uh, another major event on U.S. soil, and that was the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7th of 41, uh, Americans didn't uh, suddenly rush to say that, well, you know, it must have been that thing about about America cutting off Japan's steel supply so they couldn't continue expansion into China and into Korea and the other neighboring countries there in the East. That must have been the thing. It's really our fault. You didn't hear that. What's changed? There was a a tipping point, and I peg the beginning of Under Dogma to the Berkeley student protests of the mid-1960s. Now, why did it happen then? And this was when... So just to, again, reset the frame, this is not people being against bad people for doing bad things. This is people being against those who have power, even if they're virtuous. What they're doing is they're fighting the power. And in Berkeley in the 1960s, that's when the, quote, fight the power movement began. And the reason why it began at that time, and I go into a whole chapter on this, is because that was the first generation that came of age in a country that was a superpower where they didn't have to fight for sustenance and fight to get by like their parents did. They were born literally at the top of the power heap in the world. And ever since 1989, all Americans have been the only ones at the top of the power heap. So this was the first generation, and when they came of age in the 60s, they were given all this power, and suddenly they were looking around, and they started to feel queasy about it, maybe apologetic about it. And that kind of thing is a luxury only afforded people who live in relative power and safety. People around the world... Don't bow down and apologize for power. They want to take it from you. You know, that's the reason why I wrote this book. I mean, while some Americans take exception to American exceptionalism and American power, America's enemies have a far, far different view of power in their own words. Let's take Osama bin Laden at his word. He said their view of power is this. When people see the strong horse and the weak horse, by nature they will like the strong horse. That's precisely the opposite of under dogma. And, you know, one of my favorite writers is Mark Stein. And he writes about America's demographic disadvantage to its enemies. They're having more kids, we're having less. In under dogma, I show how 
those who practice under dogma are putting America at a philosophical disadvantage to its enemies by championing the weak horse and demonizing the strong horse. And the consequences of that over time are dire for America. Well, to be sure, particularly since we're no longer using as the yardstick um, things as righteousness and morality and goodness and fairness and fair play, uh, the kind of um, the kind of measuring sticks, the yardsticks that we were taught were measurements of, of virtue and wholesomeness when we were kids. At least I certainly was. Now all of a sudden, uh, we uh, we move to the notion that it's simply based on this one size. Yeah, it almost almost then in the end favors the bully, doesn't it? What it does is it shows, it, it shows you the power of this belief system to literally throw out our notions of right and wrong. I mean, we've all heard of moral relativism, but it's not, it's not an accurate term because it's only relative in one direction. You don't see moral relativists automatically, instinctively, taking the side of the powerful. <laughs> it's always on the side of the little guy. They're always excusing the actions and behaviors of the little guy, saying, oh, it's because of this, because of that. No, I mean, some things are just plain wrong. Well, look, for example, uh, uh, one of the things that, is, that has always frustrated me, and we've seen this rear its ugly head once again um, in, in the wake of the recent uh, recession, and that is the idea that we see people that, uh, well, you know, so-and-so got caught stealing today, and it's because of the high unemployment in the region, and because there's a lack of parity in, in employment opportunities, and so as a result, people steal. Yeah. And I've right. argued, well, let's go back to the last time that America really suffered economically, and that was not the Great Recession, but the Great Depression, where we had 25% of the of the working public unemployed, uh, where we had no social network available, there were no uh, safety nets in place, Social Security, unemployment, none of that existed. And yet, very few incidences outside of the outlandish stuff like organized crime that would lead to things like, you know, the, the Ma Barker and uh, John Dillinger, you didn't see average Americans going out to steal just to feed their families. No, they went out, they sold apples and pencils on the street corner, they bartered and traded, they did what they needed to, but we didn't see America become a wholesale group of thieves. And so I would argue that when we look at thievery, it's not indicative of somebody who's who's stealing because they're hungry and trying to feed their family, it's indicative of somebody that is living in sin, that's a criminal, and as a result is behaving in a criminal fashion. Absolutely. And those people who, who dismiss it and say, well, they're just stealing because they're poor, they're profoundly insulting all the poor people in the world who don't steal. You know, I grew up poor. I'm pretty sure some people in the listening audience right now did, too. And the daily decision you make to be a good person, those who practice under dogma throw all that out the window and say, no, 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 if you're the little guy, you can do whatever you want, and you're good. The little guy can do no wrong even when he does wrong. That's under dogma. Now, this, we're ta- what we're talking about here is, you know, power haves and power have-nots and rich and poor. It's power imbalances. And one way to deal with power imbalances is to, you know, get angry or spiteful or, or turn against those who have achieved success and power and just champion the underdog, the little guy. And what you're doing is you're celebrating his weakness. That's one way to do this, deal with power imbalances. That's under dogma. Michael Farrell, my guest, the book Under Dogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to Trash American Power. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Michael Perel, my guest today. You know his writings from townhall.com as well as the Washington Times. He's got a new book out called Under Dogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to Trash American Power. Help me understand sometimes perhaps the, the dynamic here. You know, when, when we are the overdog and yet we demonstrate um, a, a propensity toward favoring the underdog, clearly those stakes are at odds. I wonder if some of this goes back to a sense of, of misplaced or confused guilt. I mean, sometimes we see Americans, even when we're the ones who clearly, even to the casual observer, Michael, have been injured, yet we take on a position supporting the underdog almost in a fashion of self-hatred. Why? I'm guilty occasionally of being a member of the reality-based community. So I'm going to stay factual. And there are people out there who feel this guilt. Okay, so I say to them, look, America is the number one power in the world. By definition, there must be one power in the world that is number one. So if you're so guilty and you feel so bad about it being America, fine. What are the alternatives? What are the alternatives? I mean, I look at the entire arc of history, and I see clearly, and I'm sure you do too, that this American moment is a miracle of history. It's something to be treasured. We've all heard that phrase, freedom is not free. I would add to that, I would say American exceptionalism is not free. It's something that needs to be earned and fought for every day, and we've seen that so clearly over the past two years. I would say that it's not inherited so much as it's fought for and won every day by Americans, and I say they've earned it. And maybe that's the point that's that's un- misunderstood. I think, for example, I started my day today by reading a op-ed piece arguing that we just ought to dispense with all of this. And the writer went on to talk about how the Star-Spangled Banner has so many references to war and, and you know, why should we be talking about war when we're going to enjoy a, a pastime? Of course, ironically, they're talking about this ahead of football, one of the most violent pastimes that we Americans enjoy. And yet I thought to myself as I read this article, Article, how absolutely completely disconnected with history is this writer who doesn't understand that he's exercising his First Amendment rights to argue changing the lyrics or dispensing with altogether uh, the national anthem because he's offended by the war overtones, and yet it is the war overtones to which the national anthem refers that shed blood, that bought the very freedom that he enjoys to make such an opinion known publicly in the first place. What irony. And you see the power of this belief system, this underdogma. Do you think for a second that in any of our enemies' countries, there's currently people sitting themselves saying, you know what, um, we probably shouldn't sing that song that has stuff about it, you know, about killing people in it because it might offend uh, someone's sense of it. just doesn't happen. And that's what happens when you have this queasiness about power. And it comes from this natural reaction. It's, it's a gut reaction. It's non-thinking. It bypasses the rational mind. It makes you automatically think that the powerful must be bad and the little guy must be good. And why would you think that? Well, you think that because every time you turn on a television show, a movie, the evening news, or even from the President of the United States, you hear over and over and over that when you achieve wealth and success and powerful, you're bad, you're a fat cat, you need to be demonized. And when you hear this for your whole life and you mix that in with that, that shared human experience that we all have of being a small and powerless baby as children, it just all comes together into this love-hate relationship with power that a lot of people who practice under dogma have actually learned how to manipulate inside of you. And I actually show you how that's done. 
quite disturbing, and it goes right to the whole government takeovers. I know we're running out of time, but if you want to know how the government did all those takeovers, let's go through the takeovers. Big health insurance, big banks, big lenders, big insurance, big student lenders, big Wall Street fat cats. What do they have in common? They're all big fat cats. They're all big powers. And the government knows how you react to that. They just put the word big in there. They claim they're going to stand up for you, the little guy. And they use it to take your power away. This is a deep-seated belief system. And I want you to be able to see it clearly so you can rip it out of yourself because they're, they're using it to manipulate you right now. Well, I watched in a news story that I shared with my audience before you joined me tonight uh, concerning the push toward removing the opportunity for, quite frankly, the U.S. taxpayer to pay for abortions through the new health insurance law. And uh, one of the Congress people arguing against it immediately makes the argument that, well, we thought Republicans were in favor of making government smaller. Obviously, this is an attempt for big government because they want to put government back in the bedroom once again. And, of course, it, it's, it's the very careful solution Selection of certain words that they know is going to um, elicit a certain response. Yeah. Even though what may be communicated makes a- everything communicated there before and afterwards makes no sense whatsoever. If we pick on certain buzzwords, there it is. Even to going back to the, the example you share in the book, and we talked about this even related to sports a moment ago, the universal dislike that some have for the New York Yankees. And if you drill down as to why do you hate the Yankees so much, I think the honest person would simply answer, that's because they win so much. And they typically always beat my team. Therefore, I'm in favor of any team that's fighting or, or, or going up against the Yankees. I'm so happy you brought this up because I would love that we close with this because how do you satisfy those who practice under dogma, right? The only way to satisfy them is to stop being powerful. America's tried everything else. Foreign aid, liberated Europe, fund the United Nations, the most charitable nation in world history. Every time there's a disaster anywhere in the world, American helicopters are there on site saving people's lives. And by the way, you don't have helicopters if you don't have power. And the only way to satisfy under dogmatists is to stop being number one, just like Yankees with Yankee derangement syndrome. The only way to satisfy the Yankee haters is for the Yankees to lose. And I don't want America to lose. And that's what I show people in this book. You can actually embrace American power and exceptionalism because you've earned it. Good point and an excellent one to end on. Uh, it's a compelling book, Michael. We appreciate taking some time out of your schedule to share your insights and the hard work that went into this. Uh, by the way, of course, um, I mentioned that uh, Michael is also a columnist for uh, townhall.com, which is a, a sister property of uh, the Salem radio station. Point you in that direction to read his insights and musings. The book, again, called Underdogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to Trash American Power. And the book available through Amazon.com and also information on the web at under-dogma.com. That's under-dogma.com. And our thanks again to Michael Burrell for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.